2: and um, he, went, he, he just kind of vented to me about how frustrating it is for him and for all the players in, uh, in his era that everything they do is, is measured on a Michael Jordan scale. Like, everything they do is, is brought up on Michael Jordan. And he basically said, you know, this is our time. Like, this is our time. Like, Michael's done. Like, like we, we're, the, we're, the, we're the face of the league right now. Like, give us our due. Give us our props. And that's always stuck with me.
0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to NBA senior writer for Yahoo Sports, Michael Lee, about the NBA playoffs and all the ins and outs of the greatest drama happening right now in sports. Also, I've got some choice words about the treatment of the Washington football cheerleaders. That includes a blistering statement by Sarah Blackwell, the attorney of two cheerleaders who were wrongfully dismissed. You have to really hear this to believe it. It will take the yellow off your teeth. Then, I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, very special ones this week, um, as well as more surprises. So please stay tuned, but first, let's talk to Michael Lee. Question for you, Michael. Uh, as LeBron James goes down the court with eight seconds left against the Toronto Raptors, what were you thinking was going to happen? What did you think when the shot was in the air? What was your thought process?
2: Um. Well, before, they, during the timeout, I was like, okay, there has to be anybody but LeBron here. Like, if, if, if J.R. Smith makes a layup, I live with it. If Kevin Love hits a half-court heave, I live with it whatever it takes to get the ball out of LeBron's hand, that has to be the only option here because he's the only guy that is going to make the shot in this situation. So the minute he got the ball in the corner, I saw two Raptors there, and I was like, okay, they're going to double him. And once they didn't, I was like, okay, this game's over. Like it was over the minute they didn't double team him because they allowed him to do exactly what he wanted to do, which was drive the ball to his left side, which is where all of his game winners are from. You look at all his game winners. The one against uh, Indiana the previous series dribbled left, fade away, boom. If you look at the shot against Cleveland, uh, Chicago a few years ago, three years ago, in the left corner, he's leaning to the left, bang, right there. You look at that, the one in the main, his main one we all remember against Orlando in 09, um, what was he doing? Dribbled left, fade away. You let that man go to his left hand, you're guaranteeing that you're going to lose. So I, I thought it was fun that uh, it was a tie game, too. So there was a lot, not, not much pressure on the shot. So he could just drive down there, elevate, and do whatever horse shot he wanted. He took he took like just any kind of random shot that you take whenever you're just having fun with a team. It went off the glass, it went in, and you knew that was like the most demoralizing way to, to take it to Toronto. So the minute he got the ball and they didn't double or triple, quadruple, even whatever, quadruple, whatever you got to do, get the ball out of LeBron James's hands. Don't let him beat you when he's been your boogeyman for the entire time, the last three years. If you let him get a chance to beat you, he's going to. And I thought Toronto basically squandered uh, all hope because they worked so hard to get back into that game. But right now, LeBron knows he has an edge over them. He knows he can crush them. And now it's just how does he want to do it?
0: Yeah, no no doubt, no doubt. Now, the announcers for that game, um, I don't know if you were there live or if you were watching it on television.
2: I was in Philadelphia. Yeah,
0: I thought you were yeah, in Philadelphia.
2: Yeah, the game, yeah.
0: You remember that Hubie Brown was surprised that they didn't take it out At mid-court, they thought, oh my God, he's going to try to go the length of the court in eight seconds. Now, does Ty Lue deserve a little bit of credit? Because I imagine it would be much easier to trap LeBron if you take it out at half court. Instead of being able to spread out the court, you have Kevin Love there for a little slip screen. Doesn't I feel like Ty Lue gets lost in these discussions sometimes. Wasn't that a smart play to go full court?
2: It was absolutely a great play because it would give LeBron a head of steam. It would give him the entire court to see exactly what he wants. And it will allow uh, the Cavaliers to kind of scramble to where, whatever spots he wants them to be on the floor, just in case they do say double him at half court. LeBron can find whoever's going to be the guy cutting, whoever's going to be in the corner. And I, I thought it was a, a brilliant strategy, just to give LeBron a chance to go downhill. Um, that was a great, great game plan. I, I was just done. I think it probably caught the Raptors off guard. It's probably why they weren't ready for. Um, they were probably expecting. Oh, this is the play they're probably gonna run coming out of there. They're gonna run that play they ran against Indiana, and uh, it just totally I uh, think threw them out of what they were thinking because you could tell they didn't come out saying LeBron's not gonna beat it. They're so like, oh, let's just see what LeBron's gonna do, mm-hmm. and that was that was a great strategy by Ty Luke because I think that's kind of what threw them off. But even still, even if we didn't have a plan for the full court, each. I'm not letting LeBron dribble the ball yeah. <laughs> the entire length you of the court pounding this to point figure on. out what shot
0: he wants <laughs> You to are take. pounding this Oh, on. my
2: gosh, because it, it, it drove me insane. Like, every, I can't even watch highlights because once you kick the ball and I see uh, Siakam and I see uh, OG just standing there and then I see Siakam run away, I'm like,
1: no, what are you doing? <laughs> like,
2: that's the guy didn't, only guy I need to worry about on the court. Whoever else, let them do whatever else they want. Uh, but don't let LeBron, don't let LeBron be the guy to do it.
0: With a hat tip to uh, Nike, they became witnesses.
2: Absolutely, and as we all have been uh, throughout this postseason.
0: So I've noticed on social media that you are not a big fan of the GOAT discussion because that's the thing that, of course, exploded all over the place after LeBron hit that shot. Like, can we say he's the GOAT (laughs) now? Uh, What do we say about him versus (laughs) Jordan? And, I mean, I was just looking on social media this morning. It's continuing. I mean, it's been... 48 hours. Just nonstop.
2: Yeah. It's annoying because it's not that we... Yeah, what about I'm, it
0: bothers you so much?
2: I'm not against the go conversation, but I am against it coming up after every quarter or every game. Like, it, it's <laughs> really play. annoying that it's brought up all the time. Like, if he misses a jumper up, he might go with miss. You know, and, and it's, it's just every time. And it, it doesn't have to be brought up every time. I think it takes away from what LeBron's doing to either try to discredit what he's doing because – and put it on Michael's scale or by trying to discredit what Michael already did by saying, look at how LeBron did it better. I feel like um, there's a time and a place sometimes. It doesn't have to be all the time. And I think it's just nauseating that we just don't get an opportunity to just sit back and appreciate what LeBron James is doing, how great he's playing, and just look at just him. Because I don't remember, like, say when Maggie Johnson was a rookie – and he, you know, in game, uh, you know, when he winds up getting, the, you know, the great game uh, with Kareem with, Abdul-Juart uh, being down. Yeah. I don't remember him saying that. That was a great game, but, you know, Oscar Robertson averaged triple-double. You know, that um, mm-hmm. Magic's not doing that. You know, you're not critiquing every great player to someone from the past, and I, it, just, it just gets nauseating that LeBron has to always be compared to, um, to Michael Jordan. I remember um, I interviewed Kobe Bryant uh, about... Uh, 12 years ago when he was, um, it did, right before he hit 81, I remember having a conversation with Kobe Bryant, and um, he, went, he, he just kind of vented to me about how frustrating it is for him and for all the players in, uh, in his era that everything they do is, is measured on a Michael Jordan scale. Like, everything they do is, is brought up by Michael Jordan. And he basically said, you know, this is our time. Like, this is our time. Like, Michael's done. Like, like we, we're, the, we're, the, we're the face of the league right now. Like, give us our due. Give us our props. And that's always stuck with me, you know, as as we've gone through this thing. And it's, as LeBron's career has, you know, obviously, um, you know, put him on that upper echelon of one of the top players to ever play. Uh, but I, I still feel like it's, it doesn't do justice to him that we always have to bring up Michael Jordan's name. And I think we can appreciate what he's doing right now and acknowledge the greatness that he brings and what he represents for this era as the best player of this era. And I think that's enough. I think that's a great thing to do. Um, but to always bring Mike's name into it, I, I just think it's unfair to LeBron. Um, and and, and he, he brought on a lot of it. Like he says, I'm chasing the GOAT. He said, I want to be the GOAT. And, that, and that's fine. But I, I also feel like it takes away from this moment, it takes away from what he's doing. And a lot of people who are engaging in the discussion either never saw. Michael play or too young to really appreciate what he did and, or, you know, they just would refuse to give LeBron the credit for what he's doing right now. And I feel like, you know, I could break down, you know, why I feel like Mike is the, is the best, but I also feel like I'm also becoming a sucker <laughs> for for the debate that I don't feel is necessary. Um, I, I just feel like what LeBron is doing in this era of basketball is fantastic. But Michael played at a different time, played in a different era. And I also feel like um a lot of the mythology that's been created for Michael, um, you know, I, I think we don't really acknowledge the era that he played in either, you know, for the detriment. But I also feel like this conversation, you know, I always just it really just keeps us from acknowledging and appreciating what we're actually seeing. I don't want to see what's happening right now in the lens of what happened in 1996. I want to see it in what's happening right now. And that's enough for me.
0: Well, let me ask you, I won't ask you who you think the GOAT is as of this very second, given that last shot in that last game, because that would almost be like I'm trolling you after what you just said. But <laughs> I do want to ask you um, about a, an era compare and contrast. Because like when, 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 I, when I actually try to compare it in terms of era to era... I see Jordan's era has lower scoring games, and of course, you can hand check and beat people up Mm -hmm. upside the head in a way that you can't today. But LeBron's era is the era of the unicorn. It's almost ironic because there are multiple unicorns, which I should say it's a misdefinition, but we're in the era of players being taller, (laughs) more versatile, quicker feet, much more of a global talent pool. Uh, everybody's in shape, and you go back and look at some of those Jordan games, and you're just sort of like, how? How is that? Per- how is that person on a court? And and so, but I wanted to ask you is like, what do you think is the greater impediment towards individual and team success for a, a transcendent offensive player—the uh, ability to hand check and foul, or the ability, or, or having to navigate uh, the, the Giannis's and the Kelly Oubre Juniors of the world? <laughs> um, oh, I think that the game right now, is as, as
2: great as the athletic, athletes are, as great as the um, product is, um, I think it's, it's definitely conducive to a player to dominate statistically if he has the ball in his hand. Um, and it's sort of been that way. Ever since the hand-checking rules have been in place, we've sort of seen the explosive offensive production. And a lot of times it's coming from point guards or whoever the primary ball handler is. And I think that when you look at LeBron, he's essentially a 6'8", 6'9", point guard. So he has the ball in his hands. He's an incredible physical presence. And so even if you say you should hard foul him every now and then, you're going to feel it if he comes in trucking you, (laughs) you know, because he's so much stronger than everybody else. Um, And I, I feel like even, I think LeBron would be able to dominate or play great in any era just because... the way he keeps his body up and the way he um attacks and the way just how physically um gifted he is i think he's the most phenomenal athlete that i've seen on a basketball court just because of the upkeep the way he's able to maintain that strength the way he's never had any major debilitating injuries the way he's always on the always playing just about every game um if he sits it's for rest but it's not because he's got like some major ailment so his uh his durability, his longevity, all those things are phenomenal. Um, but I and I, I just feel like for me, when we have this conversation, what we leave out a lot of times is that basketball is a team sport at the end of the day. And individual numbers are great, but your objective when you step on the floor is to win. And Michael won and you know, and not, not only did he win, but he eliminated all the elements of suspense and intrigue once the season started. So you you started every October knowing that the Bulls were going to win the championship. It was just a matter of who they were going to be and how and how they're going to beat them or, you know, in six games or less. <laughs> it never went to a game seven. And, that, and that's the one thing that, that impressed me about Mike and why I'm in the camp that he's the best that I've seen, because he not only put up his own individual numbers, but he elevated his team to a level to where you weren't going to touch him. And once he got to the top and started winning championships, the only time he lost was when he came back for you know in March and didn't, have, didn't play a full season. But anytime time he played a full season, that season was going to end with the Bulls' championship. And while LeBron is great, he stacked up statistics, he's put up numbers that are just mind-blowing. Um, especially in this era where everybody's able to get triple doubles and put up mind-blowing stats if they have the ball in their hand all the time. Um, I think that his ability to elevate his team in the regular season just has not been there. And when I think about LeBron James over 15 years, I wonder, like, what were the great teams that he's been on? What were those dominant teams that you went in and saying, going into the season, like, yo, this team is going to win a championship I can only think of one, really, where, like, you knew for sure that this team was going to win the championship the minute the season started. And that was in 2013. That was coming off that title in 2000, 2012. But a lot of people don't even remember, you know, his first two years in Miami, the Heat never had a number one seed. You know, they they were not the number one seed. The Chicago Bulls were. Um, you know, they they obviously went to the finals and won in 2012, but they weren't favored to win the championship in 2012 the Oklahoma city thunder was so as great as LeBron has been and as much as he's marveled us with all these statistics and just what he's been able to do in terms of team success, I feel like that's the one part of his resume that is lacking because when you talk about the bulls, you talk about magic, Johnson's Lakers, you know that you can rattle off great teams that they led throughout the course of the season. You look at this Cleveland team, they're probably going to make their fourth straight trip to the NBA finals. He never won 60 games with while having two really elite all-star players on his team, and no other team in the East has had that level of talent. But um, there are to happen. The, the Atlanta Hawks won 60 games. So, <laughs> so, um, so that 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 to me is is what I think is lost. You know, in, in a lot of the debates, is that people don't people are so caught up in their corners and in their camps that they don't want to take a step back and really evaluate. What's going on? And and I will use this even against Michael, you know, as great as he was and as dominant as he was in that era, a lot of people tend to forget that between 1988 and 1995, the NBA added six teams. That means that 72 players were added to the league and some of those teams were diluted and the talent wasn't dispersed as it was. Say when Magic Johnson was winning championships. Who's my favorite player of all time, and I I don't mind saying that. But but the league itself was watered down, and that's why you saw the scores were in the ni- in the eighties, and the nineties. You know when uh you know when he wound up hitting that shot in Game Six, what the like, score was in the eighties. Like for me as a basketball fan, I hated the nineties era. I was not a fan of that basketball because I felt like the game was a bit diluted. That being said, <laughs> you 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 can't. You can't um, take away what somebody doesn't have, and the fact that um, you know Michael would beat who was in front of him, and he beat some Hall of Fame players um, along the way, some great teams um, in the in the championship round and in the conference finals. So I can't I can't say it was totally bad, but I mean in terms of just dominance, Michael took advantage of the situation and made the most of it. So I think everybody who is in the conversation for the greatest. Have some things we could do to chip off the uh you know the mythology and the the legend but but for me i i I look at team success, I look at you know individual dominance, and I look at just the inevitability there was an inevitable thing with Michael Jordan that LeBron seems to have only in the Eastern Conference, but when he guys to gets to the finals, it's not the same level you're not going into every finals thinking. Oh, LeBron's team is going to win just because they have LeBron. Um, you know it's going to be a competitive series, but um, I don't know. That that's just where I stand. And I but I, I, I hate I hate that it's broken down each game and it's always people are like. <laughs> I, well, I swear
0: I wasn't trying to make you have a discussion that you really didn't want to have. I promise. Well,
2: I, I don't I don't mind I don't mind having it as long as it's a rational discussion. And people actually think logically and it's not, you're just a hater because you think this way. And for me, it's just, it's annoying when I see people saying, oh, well, you know, LeBron's a GOAT because he has more buzzer beaters. And I'm like, well, I would counter that Michael didn't need any buzzer beaters because his team was winning and he, <laughs> he you know, the rare times he did, he wound up hitting the shot. And then they say, well, LeBron's the greatest in game seven. Well, like I guess, hey, Michael never had a game seven, <laughs> you know? Um, and So, I, but I think you know, and like I saw something a few weeks ago on Twitter. It's like Michael Jordan lost three times in the first round and LeBron never did. And I'm like, wait, come on. We can't just throw stuff out without context. And that, that that's what gets me riled up is that things are said without context. Things are said. And, 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 I, and I said uh, that, you know, it's sort of it's like a simple-minded approach to everything where we just say we just throw out one stat that conveniently makes our guy look good or another stat that makes a guy to look bad, and um, and it also feels like <laughs> it, it's tough to have a debate when you when you're not open minded to changing the result. And I yeah, think that
0: you're talking about sports or politics right now.
2: Everything I, I could definitely talk about politics too. It's tough to have a debate if you're, if your um, end result is you already say if you already say that Michael is the greatest, then we don't really need to have an argument. If you're already saying LeBron is the greatest, then we really don't need to have an argument. You can just throw every stat you want out there. I don't see anybody's going to listen and say, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, it's it's all – it's all. I guess it's, it's supposed to be fun. And, it, and for the most part, it is fun. But it's not fun when it's every game. And it's every game. And we're talking about LeBron beating the Toronto Raptors. And nothing against Toronto. They've had an excellent season. But – are we really saying Toronto is one of the all-time great teams that we've ever seen? Like the fact that he has, you know, you know, owned them the last three postseasons is admirable. It's great. It speaks to LeBron's legend, but it also it doesn't really tell me that the Toronto Raptors are a team that needed to be feared by anybody. Um, it's, so
0: it's so funny too, though. Like I I listen to the NBA channel on SiriusXM, XM, and they, um. I can't even think of a host who didn't say, yeah, the Raptors are the better team. LeBron'll keep it close, but it'll be 6 or 7. Like that speaks to what you're saying. Like we all speak now about this inevitability of LeBron beating Toronto and looking back at the last couple of years, but I really don't think that was the dominant mood in the spo- in the NBA media.
2: Go yeah, ahead, no, you yeah. And that's that, that's going into a lot of series. I mean so quickly, it, it does. And then and now we're like, oh man, now we're going to get Warriors past four. And I think going into that series, who who's
0: going to be favored? Yeah, I mean the Warriors are going to be seen as. I mean, we know, we know, we know, who's going to be favored to win. And Houston so, too, um, and that that's that's sort of Houston will be favored
2: slightly, though. I think there still will be people who would say that since Chris Paul and, and James Harden haven't done it on that stage that uh that LeBron would uh, sort of have it, a bit of an edge over them and, and over Dan Tony since they haven't done it. So but I think the Warriors have proven the Warriors the thing I like about the Warriors and about Steph Curry and those guys is that they beat LeBron in twenty fifteen obviously, you know, Curry got hurt and uh Kevin Love got hurt in that series. But they beat him that first year in the finals when LeBron didn't see them coming. You know, when he assembled this his super team or whatever you want to call it in Cleveland, he envisioned going there and dominating. You know when he got there, and no one saw the Warriors coming. They thought the Spurs were going to be the team to beat. The Warriors came up, and and Steph Curry and those guys were like, you know what? We respect you, LeBron. We appreciate all you've done, but it's our time now. And and that's that's the approach you have to take if you're going to beat LeBron. And so so few teams in the East have had that sort of attitude. When they enter a series against LeBron, they, they, they sort of give so much deference that um, they are defeated before the series even begins. I think that's what Toronto's problem has been. But when I look at Indiana, they didn't come in with that attitude. They went at them like, you know what, we know you're the, we know you're great, but we also know that we feel like we're better and we're going to beat you. And they played seven games like a team that believed they were better, and that has to be the first step. And that's why I have a lot of respect for Nate McMillan and the system he came up with, the scheme he came up with, to really make it a difficult series for Cleveland. I think most people just expected it to sort of be a a pretty easy, you know, uh, first-round matchup. But they attacked. They went at it. And Toronto, on the other hand, sort of, like, was hoping that things could work out. And with LeBron, you can't come in with just the hope that you're going to win. you you got to come in thinking that it's going to happen that's the only way it's going to – because he, he mentally is at that point where the minute he finds that weakness, the minute he finds that opening, he's going to crush you.
0: Well, the people that you're talking to in the league, there must be chatter already starting as far as where LeBron's going to play next year. I mean, I know nobody knows. And yeah. Gonna depend on how these playoffs end. But yeah. what are you thinking and what do you think the best spot for him would be? You know, honestly, um, I'm interested to see what happens
2: in Cleveland because if they make a finals run, right, they still have Brooklyn's pick. I'm interested to see what happens in the lottery. What if Brooklyn winds up with the number one and number two pick um, or three pick? You know, if they end up with a top three pick in the draft and, you know, say they can dangle that towards San Antonio to get a Kawhi Leonard, would that convince uh, LeBron to stay? It might, um, and you know, and so I, I'm interested in, in Cleveland just because it'd be tough to leave a team that just went to the final. Though he did it before, unless you have an, a clear cut uh, places you can go, and I know people throw out Philadelphia um, as an option, but I, I don't know if I'm if I'm the Seventy Sixers and I'm invested in Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. I don't know if I want LeBron to come in and sort of take away from what should be their moment in terms of growing into star superstar players that can really carry a franchise just on just their, their own talents. Um, obviously the Lakers are thrown out there a lot. Um, I don't think you would go there because that's such an established brand. And when you look at just the history of the NBA, there've only been some championship brands um, where you have the Celtics, you have the Lakers, you have the Bulls, you have the Spurs. So you have four franchises that have, you know, basically established Detroit systems as well. They got three titles too. Um, but I'm not on the every team that's one of the last championships, but um, LeBron has sort of created his own. You know, he has his own championship brand, and that's whether it's in Miami or it's in um, Cleveland. So you kind of got to give him props for what he's established for him to join the Lakers it it sort of diminishes both brands because they've been so great without each other um can you see
0: him in Philly your hometown now
2: um or
0: your new home I I should say say.
2: yeah I don't I don't I don't see him there uh just because I just don't see how it helps Ben Simmons in the long term because you know he's essentially a a 6'10 point guard who can't shoot and uh Playing, put, taking him off the ball sort of takes away whatever his strengths are, and I think you you would impede his in development in some ways if LeBron's there. Now you might win some games, but I'm I'm just wondering the long term effects on on Simmons' career and what he becomes. Because um, the thing is, when you have LeBron on your team, you're going to have to acquiesce to whatever his desires are and whatever he wants, and um, <clears throat> it may hurt your long term future. Because as great as Cleveland's run has been the last four years. If he does leave, it's going to be pretty bad going forward because they gave up Kyrie Irving and Andrew Wiggins for this four-year run. When if they have both of them, that could be they Cleveland could be the team that's competing with Philly and Boston, you know, going forward. Um, as opposed to like if LeBron leaves, they are automatically being flushed to, to the lottery. Um, so it, I, I think I think Houston makes some sense. Um, although the wet the path in the west is much is much tougher in the east, um, you know, obviously uh, is an easier uh, way. so that, that's why i'm I'm interested to see what happens with the lottery what, what the Brooklyn pick winds up being, and then what Cleveland could do to maybe add a piece to to keep LeBron there because if I'm him, and obviously he's probably five steps ahead of any of our thinking. If I'm him and I'm looking around, there really isn't an appealing place to go to where you can just throw your thumb up and say, Yep, that's where that's where he has to go, at least in my opinion. But again, LeBron is a very bright guy, smartest um player I've covered. Uh, so he, he, he know he knows what he wants to do better than anybody else. But I, I'm interested to see if they make a finals run and, and give the Warriors a tough time in the in the playoffs. I think it'd be tough to leave that.
0: I'd be remiss if I let you go without asking you one Washington Wizards question, even though there are probably three people listening to this podcast who give a damn. (laughs) I'm taking advantage of the fact that you have D.C. roots, that you know this team, and that this team means a great deal to my family. So, hey, even if they're listening, (laughs) they'll be into it. What do you do with the Washington Wizards at this point?
2: Um, well, I mean, I, I, I try to improve my front court. Um, I have to find a way to, um, get, get some more athletic, um uh, bigs and, uh, try whatever means I can to abandon what's been going with, uh, March and, uh, Yamahini because that, that center tandem is, is really, I think, the main hindrance um, because you need to invest in better wing play and better perimeter players. Um, We've seen it. You can look around in the playoffs. Most of the time, if you have a a, a big man, even if you have an elite big man, you you wind up abandoning him in the postseason because you have to go with your most skilled players. And most of the time, your most skilled guy is not over seven feet. So unless you're fortunate enough to have an Anthony Davis or Kevin Durant, who gets like you said, this unicorn era. Um, so I think they need to rethink how they build their their front court. And uh, honestly, <clears throat> my main issue with the Wizards this year was that they don't really value the talent that they possess. And when I say that, they pay they place too much emphasis on John and Brad, and they're great players, but There's a limit to how far both of them can take you. We've seen it. You know, um, it's the second round, and this year, I see that they just didn't have the chemistry or the rhythm. But they have a guy in Otto Porter who's one of the best three-point shooters in the league. And a lot of people say, well, he's got to be more aggressive and more assertive, but he also needs opportunity. You know, he's not gonna he's not gonna be the kind of guy to just steal the ball from John or (laughs) or Brad or dribbling it up. Um, And I think if they recognize the talent, if John and Brad recognize the talent they have on the, on the floor with them, it would take so much pressure off of them that they, they obviously play with, in that they have to do everything and carry everybody. I always said that, you know, if you have a three-point shooter like Otto, it doesn't even matter if he makes the shot. He needs to take, he needs to take a lot of shots because it's going to free, free up the uh, floor for those guys because the defense is going to have to be committed to him on that end of the floor. But if they they, they know he can shoot it, but if if you're not going to pass him the ball, then you basically are eliminating a a possible weapon for you Um, because it's going to free you up for better looks. And if he takes more shots, there's a chance he might make more shots, and that's going to make the team better as well. So they have to find a scheme that isn't just about two players. They have to maybe adopt what Toronto did, and sort of use that system to where you sort of build from internally but also come up with a system that really encourages team body ball movement and where you're not just saying, okay, your turn, John. Okay, your turn, Brad. Go ahead and bail us out here and save us here because that starts to wear on you. That starts to wear you down. And, you know, Brad's had injury history. Um, John obviously has had three surgeries in the last two years. You've got to find a way to maximize their talents. You've got to find a way to keep them on the floor so they're not physically beat up and banged up once you get to the playoffs and that they're not being run down because they're playing too many minutes, um, you know, in the postseason. But I think their main thing is, you know, it's just hard to, say, make a dramatic, you know, uh, change. Um, and I, I don't know if they need to, but, um, but I think that they really need to start, find come up with a scheme, come up with a system that rel- relieves John and Brad from what they believe is their duty to be the heroes because hero ball unless you're LeBron James it ain't taking you
0: anywhere mm, your mouth God's ears yo Mike thank you so much for the time uh, b- before I let you go what music are you listening to right now what's getting you through the day
2: uh, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm listening to KOD a lot more uh, from J. Cole um, count it up count it up count it Count it up, count it up, count it up, count it, count it up, count it up, count it up, count it. Can't take it when you die, but you can't live without it. Count it up, count it up. Count it. Like I heard it the first time and it was all it was cool, but then I've been talking to my cousin and he's like loves it. So i starting to listen to that. Um don't you so find I'm that true when you get
0: older? That it's hard to catch capture something as being good the first time you hear it. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the case. But I, I know, like, whenever I would hear something, you know, back when we had CDs, and you would just you could slide it into there, and then the, the music comes on, and you're hooked like right away. Now, now that you just got everything on your phone or your computer, it, it's, I think it sort of takes away from that that magical feel that that you get that 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 at least for me. Uh, from when you used to tear the wrapping off a CD, you know, open it up, you know, look at the liner notes and see who produced the tracks and then slide it in and say, oh, yeah, let's ride. You know, but, but again, I could just be an old man. I've been listening to the KOD a lot.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's Yo, Michael Lee, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Really do appreciate the time.
2: Oh, thank you, man. And I appreciate you having me on and, uh, and uh, sending some uh, good vibes from Philly.
0: Absolutely. All right, that was Michael Lee, ladies and gents, we'll be back right after this.
2: Count it up. Count it. Count it up. Count it up. Count it, count it up. Count it. Count it up. Count it up. Count it up. Count it. Can't take it when you die, but you can't live without it.
0: We'll be back in just a moment, but first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, we need alternative media right now. We need to get news out into people's hands. The Nation magazine has been doing it for 150 years, and we ain't stopping. Can't stop, won't stop. Support The Nation magazine. It is more needed than ever. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. That's thenation.com slash subscribe. Read my stuff. Read John Nichols. Read Collier Meyerson. I mean, we're talking some amazing, amazing writers doing the best best work on the political left go to the nation.com/subscribe and now i've got some choice words about the disgraceful horrific odious treatment of the washington football cheerleaders okay look on september 7th 2017 the washington football team hosted the philadelphia eagles in their opening game of the season players on both teams decided to dedicate the game to raising money for and elevating awareness about international human trafficking. Maybe they should have started closer to home. In a bombshell expose written by Juliette McCour for the New York Times, Washington cheerleaders have gone public about their treatment by team officials. And it is a story that will cause you to grind your teeth into enamel dust. In 2013, 36 cheerleaders went on a team trip to Costa Rica to model for a team calendar. Like so much that NFL cheerleaders do, this was an unpaid gig. To their surprise, upon landing, the cheerleaders say that their passports were seized by the team. Then while preparing to be photographed on a private beach, they were asked to pose topless, even though there would be no topless pictures in the calendar. They also discovered that they had some unwanted guests. A select group of corporate sponsors, all men, who were on-site to gawk at the cheerleaders as they posed. It was so uncomfortable that the cheerleaders formed human screens so their colleagues could change without being harassed. Then, somehow, this story devolved even further. After a 14-hour day, nine of the 36 cheerleaders were told that their day was actually just beginning. Sponsors had picked them to be their personal escorts for the evening. Several started to cry. As McCour writes, their participation did not involve sex, the cheerleaders said, but they felt as if the arrangement amounted to pimping us out. What bothered them was their team director's demand that they go as sex symbols to please male sponsors, which they did not believe should be a part of their job, end quote. So these cheerleaders, these nine of 36, were sent to a dark, near-empty nightclub in a van. Afterward, at about two or three o'clock in the morning, Finally able to return to their hotel, they were stopped by Costa Rican police who asked for their passports. Their passports, of course, had been seized by the team. The cheerleaders thought that the police assumed they were sex workers until they were able to prove otherwise. McCurr has more stories of parties on yachts for team sponsors, secret twerking parties, and more. It's sleazy and reads like nothing less than the trafficking of these women. In commenting about their cheerleading program, all the team would say was, The Redskins Cheerleader Program is one of the NFL's premier teams in participation, professionalism, and community service. The work our cheerleaders do in our community, visiting our troops abroad, and supporting our team on the field is something the Redskins organization and our fans take great pride in. They also take pride in that racist name. And also, how disgusting is it that they didn't respond to the particular allegations and instead chose to hide behind the troops? It's the last refuge of scoundrels. Now, it is certainly difficult to hear this and not think about the case of the wrongful termination lawsuits of cheerleaders Bailey Davis and Kristen Ware, which I've covered here previously. Davis was fired for posting a picture of herself in a bathing suit on Instagram and the dismissal of Ware was for talking publicly about her decision to not have sex before marriage. Both of these cases reveal that the people running these cheerleading squads see these women and their bodies as commodities. I spoke to Ware and Davis's attorney, Sarah Blackwell, about the Washington football story, and her comments will set your hair on fire. You gotta hear what attorney Sarah Blackwell had to say. She said, first, I am so proud of these girls for speaking out and telling the truth. I hope it encourages other women to be brave and tell their stories. I've been in contact with many former NFL cheerleaders from many teams, and there are a lot of unlawful and egregious things going on within most NFL cheerleading teams. Roger Goodell has to do more than provide a canned statement to the media that the cheerleaders deserve a professional environment free of discrimination and harassment. End quote. He needs to ensure that they are given what he says they deserve. Blackwell also offered her opinion on Commissioner Roger Goodell. She said, My personal feelings on Goodell at this point are that he has a very low regard for women. He is not doing anything to address these issues. He is not speaking out against these awful practices. He has a history of not doing the right thing for abused women who have suffered at the hands of his moneymakers. Goodell needs to stand up for the women in his league. He has a duty to the women in his league. We are living in the time of the Time's Up movement, and Goodell needs to step up here or his time is up in the NFL. Blackwell also pointed out how easy and cost-effective it would be for Goodell to fix what ails the league. She said he can have NFL rules and regulations that apply to teams and cheerleaders that protect the women and ensure the laws are followed. It costs the team zero dollars. It prevents future lawsuits, so it saves the NFL money. But Goodell has no regard for women and has refused thus far to deal with these serious issues. I challenge sponsors of the NFL to demand change. I challenge fans to refuse to attend games. I challenge football players to take a stand. End quote. Look, the treatment of cheerleaders in the NFL is a disgrace. There's an easy answer. They can pay them decent wages and cover them with basic labor protections. That the league cannot accomplish these modest goals speaks volumes about both Roger Goodell's leadership and his league. The answer is not to abolish cheerleading, as some have suggested. It's a union for these workers that they need, so they can collectively bargain for what they deserve. Speaking of the Washington football team, we got the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award goes to AJ Francis. A former Washington football tackle, he signed with the New York Giants and then he posted on Instagram a picture of him laughing at his former team and then added the hashtag and your logo is racist. So he threw it down about the Washington football team's name, their former player, A.J. Francis. Many former players have said that they believe the logo to be racist. It's pretty rare that an active player steps up and says such a thing, but that's what A.J. Francis has done and the organization Change the Mascot, they put out this statement. They said, Change the Mascot thanks A.J. Francis for having the courage to state the obvious. The name and logo of the Washington NFL team for which he used to play is racist. Nobody in America deserves to be the target of racial slurs. And Mr. Francis joins a respected group of professional athletes, civil rights activists, religious leaders, journalists, and policymakers who have spoken out against the continued refusal of the team to treat people of color with respect. Just stand up to A.J. Francis. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award goes to the person who's probably won it more than anybody else in the history of this podcast, and that would be to Donald Trump. For Donald Trump saying he would be open to a sit-down with Colin Kaepernick to discuss race and racism in the United States. So here's Donald Trump. He tries to keep Colin Kaepernick from getting a job. He calls Colin Kaepernick and people who take a knee sons of bitches, so he goes after their mothers. And then he wants to sit-down because it's suggested by people in his cabinet. And he wants it to be with Colin Kaepernick and, get this, Kanye West. Look, I feel like at this point I know Colin Kaepernick well enough that he will tell Donald Trump to take his offer and use it as a rectal thermometer. This is absolutely absurd. Kanye West is absolutely absurd. The other people who have been bandied about as going to this event, Jim Brown being one and Mike Tyson being another, I think exposes what a farce this kind of thing is. I mean, on the one hand, it speaks to the recognition of how powerful athletes are, as in the words of Howard Bryant, uh, the most well-known black workers in the United States. On the other hand, first of all, no black women speaks volumes. Second of all, Mike Tyson... Convicted rapist. Jim Brown been accused of violence against women repeatedly over the decades. Donald Trump been accused of violence against women and has admitted violence against women on audio tape, which we all know about. And you're going to invite Colin Kaepernick to this mess? Oh, no. Sit your ass down, Donald Trump. It ain't going to happen. Colin Kaepernick has made a better stuff than you. But I don't think you getting a photo op with Colin Kaepernick is going to be in the cards. Sit your ass down, by yourself, or with the only three athletes who will talk to you. Hey everybody, this is Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports Podcast. We're trying to add all kinds of bells and whistles to this pod. To do that, we need more folks who can sustain its existence. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is where you'll find us. If you become a patron, you'll see you get all kinds of little treats. But it's so important that people help us sustain and do the work. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and you can give 5 bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or if you're feeling mighty generous, a hell of a lot more than that. And all of that helps us do the kind of work that we're trying to do on the regular. patreon.com/edgeofsportspod and now back to the broadcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, the latest comings and goings with regards to Colin Kaepernick. This week, we're not going to speak about Colin Kaepernick, but about his brother-in-arms, Eric Reed. Colin Kaepernick has said time and again that Eric Reed, the former San Francisco 49ers safety and linebacker, who was the first person to kneel with Colin Kaepernick during the anthem, has been the person who's been with him all the way. And as we started recording this podcast, the news broke that the NFL Players Association was going to file a grievance on behalf of Eric Reed. And I want to read the grievance. It reads The NFLPA has filed a non injury grievance and a system arbitrator case on behalf of free agent safety Eric Reed. Prior to the start of the current NFL offseason, our union directed the agents of free agent players who had participated in peaceful on field demonstrations to collect, memorialize, and report any relevant information about potential violations of the collective bargaining agreement by teams. These cases were filed based upon the following One, and I think reading these is really important. There is no league rule that prohibits players from demonstrating during the national anthem. Two, The NFL has made it clear, both publicly and to the NFLPA, that they would respect the rights of players to demonstrate. 3. The CBA definitively states that the league NFL rules supersede any conflicting club rules. 4. According to our information, a club, and this would be the Bengals, appears to have based its decision not to sign a player based on the player's statement that he would challenge the implementation of a club's policy prohibiting demonstrations, which is contrary to the league policy. Five. At least one club owner has asked pre-employment interview questions about a player's intent to demonstrate. We believe these questions are improper given league policy. Our union continues to monitor these developments. There it's laid out very clearly, and this is something that we're definitely going to keep following as The issue continues to unfold. The latest news is that Roger Goodell was saying that he was going to make it team policy as to what people do with regards to the anthem, and it's such a gutless move by Goodell. Referencing the choice words earlier in the show, how well has it gone that cheerleading policy is team to team? How has that worked out for the Washington cheerleaders? How has that worked out for Bailey Davis and Kristen Ware? You have 32 individual policies for 32 teams with regards to cheerleading, and that's led to subsequent abuse And the same thing would happen if you had team-by-team rules with regards to whether or not players have the right to demonstrate during the anthem. And I hate the way it's phrased, like, do you agree with them doing this? It doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not. It is their right to do it. Well, that's all we have for this week's program. Thank you so much to Michael Lee for appearing with us. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigabu. Thank you to everybody out there listening. It makes a huge difference when you go to iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice and leave a rating, leave a comment. It makes a huge deal. Thank you so much for all the support that you've given. If people want to support the existence of the podcast... You can go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. You can help us fulfill our ambitions to make this podcast hegemonic in the sports and politics sphere. So thanks everybody for listening. Remember, everybody, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.